25 years ago, California voters legalized the use of medicinal marijuana with the passage of Proposition 215. Opponents claimed it would slowly normalize the use of cannabis, and, well, here we are. Today, marijuana is legal for medical use in 36 states and recreational use in 20. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and activists and entrepreneurs alike are pushing for more states to legalize it. But there's one giant entity that still views pot as a devil's weed, the federal government. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. Marijuana use is now ubiquitous in mainstream culture, why even Martha Stewart's into CBD products thanks to her good pal Snoop Dogg. Despite this, the federal government classifies basically all cannabis-related products as illegal. Can the Golden State's marijuana scene push the federal government to legalize marijuana once and for all? Evan Halper is a national reporter for the LA Times. In previous episodes, he's explained how California policies around hydrogen, fuel, and equity in boardrooms have influenced national policy. Today, we turn to weed policy. Evan, welcome back. Hi, Gustavo. Good to be here. Like I said earlier, marijuana's everywhere, at least in California. I mean, you can't drive without seeing big old billboards for some dispensary or gummy or other. Maybe the rest of the U.S. doesn't find that surprising, but it wasn't like this 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I was just talking to one of the lead advocates for Prop 215, and he was telling me, you know, that it was just always sort of him. And then there'd be in these media reports like some guy with, you know, blonde dreadlocks, a stoner on the beach. And it was just, you know, it just was not as mainstream as it is now. There was nothing close to it. I mean, we were deep in the war on drugs and the federal government was very oriented toward this reefer madness mindset, which it's still having a hard time shaking. So this Proposition 215 you mentioned, it was known as the Compassionate Use Act. What was it about? When California passed the first medical marijuana law or the first legalization anywhere, you know, it was very much an illegal substance. It was, you know, the the federal government immediately warned it was going to start cracking down, warned doctors that it may arrest them uh, if they talk about weed with their patients. The Clinton administration was very much against this. We were still looking at helicopter raids, you know, pot farms in Humboldt and Mendocino counties. There was certainly not weed everywhere, and there weren't even dispensaries when this law first passed. The measures were approved by voters in California and Arizona, but drug czar Barry McCaffrey says they send the wrong message and will lead to an upsurge in drug abuse among the young. It's a problem. It's a threat to the national drug strategy. This is not medicine. This is a Cheech and Chong show. We want to warn you squares and all you rednecks. If you hate the hippie, find the young! When the voters spoke and this proposition... Uh, became law in California, we were dedicated to working with our legislature to make a practical solution come out. And this is that practical solution. We're unified the hippies from the country. We're fighting until the South becomes the North. So basically, this was happening at the height of the AIDS crisis. Um, And you had, in San Francisco in particular, a lot of folks who were HIV positive, who had HIV AIDS. There just weren't treatments, um, and, and people were dying. You know, the city of San Francisco in particular was gripped by this public health crisis. And marijuana was one of the few drugs that um, could bring people relief. But, you know, there was such a bias against it um, by the medical establishment 
that it was really hard to come by and it was dangerous to get and, you know, you could be thrown in jail for having it. And so there was a lot of sympathy, a lot of compassion for AIDS patients, other sort of patients who had chronic diseases, glaucoma, chronic pain, other things, who were finding that marijuana was one of the few things that that was working to treat their symptoms. And so that was what the campaign was largely run on. And then some philanthropists who were very much against the war on drugs and saw this as an opportunity sort of flooded the campaign that began at the grassroots with with many millions of dollars. Um, You know, George Soros was one of them. And suddenly it became a, a real thing and they got the measure on the ballot and there was a lot of public sympathy for it. You had this mix of well-financed people, but also folks that at the time were pretty ostracized in society. We're talking about HIV patients, marijuana users themselves. So what was the strategy to get Prop 215 passed? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was a really complicated campaign because even within the pro-legalization movement, you had sort of all these different factions. You know, you had people who just thought it should be completely descheduled from the DEA's list of dangerous substances should be, you know, everything should be legal all at once. And then you had the AIDS patients, the medical people who wanted this legalized. And ultimately, the campaign that had the most public sympathy was around these patients. And so you had nurses, you had family members of people who, you know, were suffering and and were finding relief from pot and nothing else. That was how they built the public sympathy around the medical need for this and, and the AIDS crisis that was going on at the time. So Prop 215 becomes law in 1996. What were the immediate ramifications of this nationwide? So the immediate ramifications were, you know, obviously the advocates behind this and the the philanthropists who really pushed this, they saw opportunity to go from California elsewhere. It took a while. We're now at a point where we have all these states that have legal marijuana medically and recreationally. But California became the springboard for these other movements. And, you know, more money came in, more politicians came in. And regulation started here in California, and the states started to show that this actually could work, set a model. You know, it had a lot of problems along the way. There's, there's no question about that. But, um, you know, it also created this cannabis industry. I mean, it took a while. So it wasn't until 2012 that recreational use became legal in Colorado. They took the first plunge. But then, obviously, a whole bunch of states followed. We now have 20 states where it's legal in some form recreationally. So... A lot has happened since 1996. We'll be back after this break. Evan, you were telling us about how the passage of California's Prop 215 paved the way for the rest of the United States to slowly but surely accept pot. It's used not just medically, but also recreationally, but it's still illegal federally. So explain that distinction to me as someone who's never done so much as hold a pipe or even touch a doobie. Yeah, it's really confusing for people because you walk around the streets of California, as you mentioned, you know, there's pot everywhere. It's like unfettered access to cannabis. It doesn't seem like anyone's trying to stop anyone who has a license and even people who don't have a license from selling this, from opening up dispensaries. But the federal government still characterizes it as a Schedule One substance, which means they see it as having no medical use whatsoever, as more dangerous even than cocaine, more dangerous than opium, you know, at a level that's as dangerous as heroin. 
So what that means is that if you want to use marijuana medically, you're going to find that you'll have your bud tender will be able to tell you, you know, anything they know about, okay, this is how you can use this. This is how this is going to work. This is the ailment it's going to treat. But the amount of research that's being done has really been inhibited because while this is a Schedule One substance and while the you know federal government is saying there's no medical use, it, it limits the kind of research that can be done with the FDA's approval. And so there's very little medical research right now that actually helps patients understand, okay, I should use this strain for this reason, and you know this is going to work for X or Y. It's a lot of experimentation. A lot of them are just kind of flying in the dark. What's the holdup with the feds? Well, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, it's become such a mess and it's so hard to untangle. It's politically difficult. I mean, you you have a lot of lawmakers in Congress who are saying, you know, enough of this. They pass these budget riders year after year, which prohibits the Department of Justice from going after any state or any operation that's basically abiding by state laws. So Congress is prohibited federal law enforcement from coming after any California dispensary that, you know, is operating legally in the state. That Congress didn't have a problem with, but they're having a much tougher time. I mean, they've been working on this for years. You know, several lawmakers have been championing legislation, but descheduling the drug is just, you know, it's a political hurdle that they don't seem ready to leap over. And, um, you know, right now in the White House, you've got President Biden, who has wanted to ease up some things on, on marijuana prohibition, but he seems uneasy about the idea of descheduling it. It's been a Schedule One substance for so long that politically it's just become really hard for the feds to untangle this and schedule it as a Schedule Two or Three substance with medical uses. For me, it seems that one of the first baby steps, if you will, the expunging of previous convictions of marijuana. I know that's been happening in Los Angeles and that movement's happening in other cities across the United States. Yeah, I mean, the states have been very progressive and proactive in, you know, changing these things. And even some states that are just, we don't think of as progressive blue states, they're on board with this, especially when it comes to medical marijuana. And the decriminalization has been very popular in all these state initiatives. And, you know, there's been bills here and there in Congress that kind of are chipping away at this, but it's really chipping away at it slowly. And the big problem right now is the Schedule One. I mean, you know, if you want to see this substance be used properly as a medicine, it can't be a Schedule One substance. And the administration can go ahead and they can deschedule it, but it's a long process and they haven't wanted to do it. They're kicking it over to Congress and Congress isn't able to get much of anything done, as we can see. And so they're not taking this on and, you know, we're just left in this limbo. So you have this bifurcated world. Marijuana is legal in some states, but still illegal federally. How does this then affect the medical marijuana industry or specifically any research into that? It's having a big effect. There's a real disconnect there. You know, like we were talking about, you can just walk into a dispensary in L.A. and San Francisco and almost anywhere in California. And, you know, you can say I get migraine headaches. I have insomnia. You know, I've got the back pain. I've got, you know, or just I just want to have a high. And they can tell you, you know, 50 different strains you can use. And this works for this and this works for that. But none of it's really borne out in research because the federal government doesn't let any of these federal institutions that have funding to do the research actually use any of the products they sell in dispensaries. I mean, that's a whole other story. They have to get all their potter. They've had to until recently from this farm in Mississippi, which sells pot that the advocates say is like 1980s dime bag marijuana. And they're really limited in the kind of research they can do because the FDA, you know, looking at this being a Schedule One substance has, has approved very few trials. 
And so it's this confused state where you can get these drugs, but the research that I'll tell you how to use them and which ones you should be using is is really limited. Okay. Um, See, so why don't you just tell us your name oh, and sure, what you yeah. do here? You got it. Yeah. Um, so my name is Sue Sisley, S-I-S-L-E-Y. I'm an MD. I practice internal medicine, and I'm the president of Scottsdale Research Institute. Dr. Sue Sisley in Arizona, she runs the Scottsdale Research Institute, and she's been in this battle for like 12 years. She's a psychiatrist. She works with veterans suffering PTSD, and she's been trying to study how PTSD can be alleviated with pot. So a lot of veterans, you know, turn to cannabis as a a sort of less addictive, less harmful, they see it, substance for treating their, their PTSD symptoms. She has been fighting for 12 years to try to just cultivate some of the same products that you can get in dispensaries, to not have to use this weed from the University of Mississippi, which she, she says is inadequate for the studies. All of us are, are mystified that we have so many states where it's legal and yet we're still, it feels like we're still being impeded every step of the way here. And finally, she won, you know, some court fights recently, and the DEA gave her a license in Phoenix and gave out three other licenses. One of them is in California, in the Monterey area, for these operations to start cultivating marijuana for medical use. And the idea is Dr. Sisley and the other folks behind this are hoping they can eventually cultivate products that researchers would use and then could be the basis for creating, you know, pharmaceuticals that would be dispensed like prescription drugs with that kind of precision and research rigor. We are so thrilled about the chance to help propel research forward and try to at least create naturalistic studies where we can really answer the legitimate clinical questions people have about how does cannabis work, how it doesn't work, get into strain science finally, where we can understand which strains are best for which illnesses. We still don't even have a clue how to guide patients on this. We, we are guessing, but now we can actually put these unique varieties, these, all these diverse cultivars will be able to be utilized by scientists everywhere and we'll be able to start to home in on which varieties, which ratios of cannabinoids and terpenes are best for which illnesses. So these researchers are being stonewalled in their uh, research with medicinal marijuana. What are they saying is the cost? Like, what do we lose if they cannot do this research? Well, one of the advocates that we interviewed sort of put it best. He said, you know, people go, they're looking for help for how this medicine can help them with their ailments. And often all they have to go on is a conversation with their bud tender, you know, who could be some 24-year-old kid who doesn't really know much about medical science as, you know, is not a doctor. And um, were this research not stymied, people could actually be having informed conversations with their doctor, with the doctors actually having a lot of information about what strains work and how they work beyond just the doctor saying, okay, I'm going to write you this license, go try it, see what you can figure out. So then we go back to 1996, Proposition 215 in California. Back then, as you said, there was some funders who gave money and then mostly those grassroots. Now there's huge money behind marijuana, multi-billion dollar investors. You have researchers who want to do stuff and also just the public at large. So do activists think that the fight to federally legalize it is going to be easier than maybe it was 25 years ago in California? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a sense that, you know, federal legalization is inevitable and it's like, what's the holdup? Um, you know, we've the states have come this far. 
the federal government's not going to be able to bust all these states at this point, and all they're doing by keeping it as a Schedule One substance is just making this confused policy, which is probably creating a more dangerous situation for users of marijuana than if the federal government would just get on board. One other thing I should add about the proliferation of all this money and venture capital and into the weed industry is that it's created this complicated tension where you have, you know, this has always been a mom and pop business and a largely minority run business, you know, for years and years. And now that it's been legalized, there's a bunch of regulations. It's expensive to get into and to follow all the regulations. And, you know, if you want to do banking, you have to go to these special banks because there are federal rules that prohibit any kind of banking with marijuana. And so what's happening is, um, a lot of minority business owners are getting pushed out of this industry that, you know, is finally legal and they're finally operating above board, but now they can't afford it. And then finally, Evan, the people who are there pushing for Prop 215 25 years ago, what do they think about what their ballot measure uh, uncorked? So obviously um, there is some pride there that they sort of unleashed legalization in all these other states and led a path toward federal legalization. There seemed to be some frustration in some big marijuana events I've gone to that it's become such a gravy train. It's become a venture capital thing, you know, that all these people are making money off of it. I mean, you know, this is a movement that started with people who are sick and trying to help people who are sick. And it's become this kind of really big money thing. And there's some frustration among the original organizers that all these people who are, you know, cashing in and getting in in the industry and making a fortune on marijuana are not really um, participating in the movement. They're about the money and not about helping people. And so there's that tension there. Evan, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, what it means to revisit history after a year that saw a disturbing rise in anti-Asian violence. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias.